All right, folks. Well, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And um, you are probably, I think we're heading into Memorial Day weekend here in the States, which is super great. And so um, I hope you guys have a restful time. This is literally my favorite time of the year because uh, days are longer. Berries go on sale. Uh, there are a number of other reasons why this is just rocking. My birthday is coming up. Not quite yet, folks. Don't don't push me there uh, too soon. But anyway, uh, I, I love it. But as always, let me give you a little preview of what's coming up later on for our inbox. Uh, we have a girl who has a physical disability and is wondering, is that going to hurt her chances of dating in the future? And what should she consider in that process? Well, one of our counselors, Joni DeBrito, is going to give some encouragement to her. And then for our culture, Pastor Brian Noble is back with us to share more about navigating through conflict in your relationships. So you may be a conflict avoider or maybe you are just someone who loves to argue. If one of those is you, you probably need to hear uh, this culture segment, and so tune in for that. Okay, here we are for our roundtable, and uh, we thought it would be fun to have a conversation around money, specifically um, when you are dating or moving into marriage, is it okay for women to make more money than men? And that's kind of a dumb question because... Y'all know that I kind of think that's totally fine. So I'm going to show my hand there. But what are some of the things to consider? Because some people, even though they would say in their heads, like, this is totally fine, some are uncomfortable with it on a number of different levels or there are contingencies or whatever. And just the idea of, you know, in an, in an ideal world, we'd all make the same and it would be awesome. And one of our panelists, Casey, is in the HR world. So we're going to force her to answer this question as to why... <laughs> Everything is still inequitable, but I want to um, welcome to be here. Bailey, Casey, and Brian, I like to call him BK, uh, Hi, to Lisa. the table. Hey, y'all. Good to be here. Good to have you. Okay. So um, it's funny because I'm looking at John's prep here and it just, the title is, When Women Make More Money Than Men. <laughs> <laughs> just sounds so foreboding. But um, we want to have a fun conversation around this because I think this is something that, um, you know, obviously is very practical in today's day and age. And so I want to just start out kind of like getting the lay of the land, like what's been your experience with this, like either growing up, maybe you kind of were in a household where this was or wasn't the case. Maybe there was tension. Maybe there wasn't. Um, So let's start about just kind of your experience with this. And I know, um, BK, you are a resident married dude here, so you're going to have to talk about it (laughs) as it's played out in your um, moving towards marriage as well. But Um, I will just say, I mean, for me, my mom, my dad was forever in ministry. And my mom, um, as I entered junior high and high school, started working for a pharmaceutical company and got into management. So as far as I can remember in my childhood, my mom made more than my dad did. And um, it was hilarious, though, because my mom can't do numbers. So I remember her doing the, this is back in the olden days, when she would hand over her paycheck to my dad. And they never seemed to have like a weird thing about it. And so I kind of felt it was always okay. And my dad did all the finances. He paid all the bills and stuff. So I feel like that, you know, kind of helped them kind of flesh a few things out. But how about all of you? I think we're kind of on the same page, Lisa. Okay. I mean, for many years, you know, when I was young, my dad made more than my mom, but um, he was working for a an auto repair company. I won't name any names. It's still around today, but mm-hmm. he was a store manager. Mm-hmm. And uh, the general manager came in and said, was looking at the books and asked my dad, how come there weren't, you know, many thousand dollar cars being pushed through the shop? And my dad was a man of integrity and said, well, if the customer doesn't need it, you know, I'm not going to push it on him. The general manager said, well, if that's the kind of person I have running this place, I need to find someone else. Uh-huh. My dad quit on the spot. Hmm. He's a man of integrity. He said, and, and I still remember that. That's kind of one of the things that's locked in my mind is mm-hmm. when he came home and said, I don't have a job. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom stepped up to the plate and was, uh, you know, got a corporate job working QA um, with uh, a company out of Minneapolis. And she started to make more than my dad. And they kind of switched roles. And ever since then, my dad was working a couple different jobs to kind of help make ends meet. Mm -hmm. But I think my mom's company had a great benefits package Mm -hmm. that we just couldn't say no to. Mm -hmm. And um, so understanding that they were both on the same page to provide for the family Mm -hmm. and that provision meant different things. Okay. All right. Yeah, I feel like I came from a more 
It was a conservative background where my mom did stay home with her eight homeschooled children. Um, <laughs> and that, not that she me. didn't work, but yeah, okay. She didn't, she didn't do anything. She didn't lift a finger. Yeah. <laughs> no. Sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah. And then my dad was, um, he was in the air force and then later a school teacher. Um, but I just remember growing up and thinking my mom was, she worked so hard and I thought she did way more than my dad even <laughs> because of that. And that dynamic, so it, it never came down to money, though, in my mind. It was more of they're both putting in so much effort, and he comes home at the end of the day and still helps make dinner and all of these things, but she's teaching us an education. So it was it was just, um, in my mind, a great partnership in that. So money never entered into the equation, and later on, she started her own business, a nonprofit dance studio, and worked way hard for no money because mm-hmm. that's what happens with nonprofits. And so again, I'm, I, I just saw kind of an equal balance and money was never really in my mind about that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And then I have a sister who's a surgeon and obviously we'll be weight making way more than her now husband. And um, I just think we've been raised to see this, this partnership more so placed in front of us and this equal balancing um, of life and life activities versus going to an actual job Mm -hmm. making money. So it's just, it looks very different. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So my dad didn't go to college, which is something that he regrets now. Um, And I think it was when I was eight or nine, my mom's brother started an investment firm and asked her to start working with him. And so she started making more than my dad at that point. So, yeah, they swapped roles. My dad started staying home and my mom went to work, which now she is able to do her job from home now. So she's home with my sisters who are still home. But yeah, it was just kind of like a partnership. Like I just saw that they didn't care who made the most money. They were just trying to provide for the family and get my sisters and I through college and allow us to do activities and things. And even before my mom took that job, she said she remembers like counting out pennies to be able to buy diapers for Mm -hmm. my younger sister. Mm -hmm. So it just really changed um, like our family's life being able for her being able to work. So it was cool that they weren't worried about who made the most. They were just worried about providing for us, you know? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting perspective because I think there are a few prongs that also come into this that often we don't consider. And that is, um, you know, Bailey, you brought one of them up, just education. Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of in a much grayer area now in education because one, women, as far as like four-year bachelor degrees or even um, continuing education, outpace men in Mm -hmm. most categories on that But at the same time, we are recognizing, I think, as a culture that you don't always have to go and get a traditional four-year degree in order to be successful. I mean, I had a friend who was just telling me that, like, uh, up in Denver, and this was like a couple of years ago now, they were hiring, like, uh, some of the trades, like electricians, starting at, like, $130,000 a year, you know, in going going into that trade because there was such a shortage. And so I always encourage people to, like, open their Mm -hmm. eyes and be like... What are you actually good at instead of feeling like you're shoehorned into some kind of a, um, you know, specific white collar career or something that might end up, you know, not panning out for you? So um, I think that's just something good to keep in mind. But let's talk about um, maybe take a little brief detour here just to talk about be honest about stereotypes and kind of what you've come up against as you even in your own mind, in your upbringing or in. I mean, as you think about breadwinners, especially I think for people, the rubber hits the road when it comes to like having kids, who's going to be the stay at home parent. Um, And I think especially some of maybe the younger of you who are listening right now, some of our Gen Zers, this isn't maybe this is more assumptive of like, yeah, just whoever, you know, (laughs) but sometimes millennials kind of maybe have taken on a little more of what their parents thought and stuff. How do you guys feel about that? And even if you've changed opinions on that, what was your process of of getting there? I, I guess I can start. You know, we have um, we have two kids, and uh, for us, we made the decision that my wife was gonna go from full time down to part time job. Mm-hmm. Just you know, having young babies. I mean, it it just made sense for us. And and I guess in in my perspective, I wanted to try to lessen the stress on her as much as I could in terms of finances or a job because I knew being a new mom was going to be this whole new stressful thing. So trying to um, kind of plan for our our future a little bit in that regard. And she has since backed off from even working part-time now. And now she's got her own 
uh, jewelry company, but it I think it gave her the opportunity or it allowed me as the husband to really step up my game mm-hmm. and really prove that I could prove to myself that I could provide for my family. Mm-hmm. And didn't you, um, Brian, didn't you have a season? I mean, it may have been short, but where you had gone through a layoff and then it was kind of her role to, I mean, was that an okay transition or just a holding pattern? That was a, it was a hard transition. Yeah. I was actually laid off in my career so far. I've been laid off twice. And um, that, the first time I was laid off, we were both working full time. Mm -hmm. I kind of had to throw my ego away and Mm -hmm. say, you know what? In, in my career, journey, uh, this might happen a few times. Mm -hmm. So as long as my wife and I were on the same page. Now, when I was laid off, I didn't go home and start playing video games all day long. You know, I found a place where I could continue to uh, put my effort and my time and abilities in volunteering. Um, So that kind of helped me keep focused and knowing that I needed to provide for my family. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I couldn't just sit at home and drink coffee and play video games. Right. So, but that also got me on this journey of making sure you have something kind of on the back burner that you also enjoy doing. So that kind of opened the door to other, other job opportunities that were more uh, bringing passive income to our family. Okay, cool. All right, Casey and Bailey, um, I want to hear your perspectives, and I need neither of you to say that your one goal in life is to marry a guy and support him. (laughs) Oh, I I was thinking the opposite. Oh, darn it, I better leave. I'm just kidding. Because we're going to be super chill, and we're going to just talk about options here, but I need you to not lie. Well, and I've always thought in my mind, there's no way I could not work. Uh, I, I was thinking, even if I have kids... I just love going to work and I enjoy the the uh, productivity and doing something. And I've always, it's easy to fall back though on what you've been modeled growing up. So it would be in my mind, this to the stereotype question, it's easy to think, yeah, the, the woman should stay home and homeschool her child <laughs> because I was homeschooled also. Um, but since I've been growing up and seeing different friends live this out and live it out well and being able to maybe juggle work and children and living a healthy uh, life and building a healthy marriage, even with education differences with their spouses. It's really opened up my eyes to see that um, things have changed, even with the remote work environment. So you can work and look after your children and all of that. I have a lot of friends who do that. And it's just, um, in my mind, it's different. And a lot of the reasons why people fell into the stereotype or the gender roles was because a long time ago, when you were raising cattle or going hunting, that was normally the man's job. And the woman would stay home with her children because that was her primary goal. So I just feel like because of technology, things have really changed. And as long as your your work ethic is still there, work does not equal monetary. Mm-hmm. So you can work and have a fulfilling job or volunteer or do all of these other things and you're you're putting a lot into it and that doesn't necessarily mean higher income mm-hmm. and that's still that's still fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like even though my dad did stay home with us for a few years, I saw that it was kind of hard for him and for my mom because he um like, I mean, I'm not a man, so I can't speak into this. Maybe you can. But I feel like guys really want to know that they're providing for their family. So I think my dad felt like he was failing in that way because he wasn't able to provide for us. And then on the flip side, my mom felt like she wasn't being a good mom because she wasn't able to be home with us because we had been she had been home with us for like eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that just kind of showed me. I mean, I want to be a stay at home mom someday. And I mean, I would still do like remote stuff on the side, like you said. But it just kind of showed me that, um, I don't know, maybe the stereotypes are kind of there for a reason, I mm-hmm. guess. Well, and for my mentality, I wanted to provide for my family so I could give my wife the option mm-hmm. of if she wanted to stay at home, if she wanted to continue working. You know, there were options, so I made sure that I took it upon myself to have the the stable environment, to try to have the stable job to provide that income. Um to give that to her and to give that to my kids then too, um, for her the opportunity to be there. Because I guess I saw what it did 
you know, in my family, you know, with my parents kind of having the, the reverse role, my dad staying home and my mom working, you know, my dad was up in the mornings before us. He was making us breakfasts. Mm-hmm. He was making sure that, you know, we were taken care of, kind of taking on that role. And I so appreciate that. But I, I remember the, the integrity that he had, he jumping into that role, even though it was not stereotypical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose I, I look at that now and I'm like, well, I want to give my kids maybe what I missed. Mm-hmm. in that time with my mom while I was younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your perception of finances in general. Like I know a lot of couples will choose to both work because they will then say, okay, well, this is my money. This is your money. This is, you know, I want to be able to do X, Y, Z. I want to be able to, uh, you're a horrible money manager, so I'm not even messing with what you're doing. We're just going to split up bills and each of us have our own responsibility. How do you think that plays into the the money conversation and how should, if you're like, what would be your advice if if someone is dating someone and all of a sudden they are dating someone that has some pretty hardcore views on like, we're going to have separate checking accounts or we're going to do, I mean, I know there are a lot of Christians out there now who insist on prenups, you know, and Mm -hmm. just thinking through that stuff, how like emotionally do you react to that? Like, what are your thoughts around that? I'd be very wary of that. I don't Mm -hmm. know. That just, I feel like you're combining your lives. So why not combine your finances, the whole like what's mine is yours type thing, you know? And I think to keep that separate is just kind of sketchy. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. that's just me. <laughs> well, and there's, it's easier to hide things mm-hmm. from each other if you have separate accounts. Yeah. Hmm. I was actually talking about this with my mom um, because we were talking about if you if you do make a lot more money as the woman – And this sounds really bad, but um, you do go into a marriage and you're just, I'm going to combine everything and then the man leaves you or whatever happens. I don't view it as expecting the marriage to end because of doing a prenup. Mm -hmm. I do see it as more of a, I am committing to you and it's not, I'm not marrying you for your money. Mm. I'm going to sign this because I do, I am committed. So it's like kind of a different way of looking at it. Um, But I would agree. I would say that together you are joining as one. And so that really shows your commitment to merge your bank accounts and do all of that. So I was speaking in two separate topics, the prenup and the bank account. Um, But I am perfectly fine as well if my income was all play money. (laughs) 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 And there were other bills coming from someone who made a lot more than me as well, or vice versa. (laughs) Um, I don't see a problem with that type of thing, as long as there's the communication and the how are how is this going to play out. But um, I, I would agree with Bailey and that that's kind of a, a red flag for me of saying, no, this is mine and that's yours. Um, and because that just seems like they're not as committed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems like it could breed a lot of um, contention if all of a sudden it becomes used as leverage, like in mm-hmm. conflict of like, well, you know, you can't tell me what to do because this is my money or you can't, you know, or or why are you even talking because I make more money than you do or, you know, and then you just have to start addressing sin issues because then we're not talking about money anymore. And then it's just, you know, a tool in something that can be pretty contentious. Um, so to that point, just kind of in our last couple minutes here, I want to ask y'all, um, what then do you use? Like in a conversation with someone, like say you're, again, you're dating someone, you really like this person. How do you determine whether someone is just like the path that they're skilled in, the path that they've chosen just doesn't make as much money versus um, this person just isn't trying or this person, like I'll just, I'll float an example. You know, I, I have a friend who married a dude who, a super funny guy, and his dream was to become a stand-up. So he wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and he made like negative $12 doing that, basically. <laughs> so oh, no. her thing with him was basically before they got married, she said, I'm giving you three years. Like, mm-hmm. you, I give three years. Let's talk about three years to make your dream, make it happen, mm-hmm. and you're going to go full out. I'm going to support you. You know, you're going to travel. You're going to do clubs. You're going to do what you can. But I need you, you know, this can't just be some indefinite dream that is a is a um, pie in the sky kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he was really cool with that. And he, you know, worked hard and he knew he had his time frame and he's like, I want to give it a shot. 
And so, and he did, um, he ended up, you know, uh, um, it's not like Chris Rock, y'all, okay? So, um, <laughs> but he ended up making enough money that it became kind of like a side kind of thing. And then he does some other things too. But anyway, it's just a, an interesting um, way to approach the topic. What would y'all advise? Yeah, I like the idea of boundaries in that and communicating timelines because sometimes um, it's helpful even for me as a goal-oriented person to have that, well, here's what we're striving for. There are dreams, but then you also can have tangible surrounding that. So it's not just a um, a pie in the sky, maybe one day. Um, not saying that it was that way for your friend, because mm. obviously that worked <laughs> out. <laughs> no, mm. um, But just uh, the communication aspect in my mind is just so heavily important. And being able to see that you're both on the same or similar path and the same kind of... Um, because the older I get, the more I realize you can't have a dream to be a missionary and then your future husband has a dream to be a politician in D.C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. you probably won't be able to make that work ultimately. So having the same even region, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. similar mm-hmm. similar in that way. And in my mind, money doesn't play as much into that. Um, but it is really what are both of your goals in life and going back to that and then making it work as much as possible in that realm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, just in thinking this through, it comes down to, you know, scripture says if a man won't work, he won't eat. It doesn't say if he won't pull in six or seven figures or whatever yeah. it is. Uh, it doesn't put, I mean, but clearly um, the all work being done as unto the Lord and being done in an honest way that is truly meant for the betterment of your family mm-hmm. and for supporting them and providing and uh, obviously blessing others to have margin in that place eventually mm-hmm. is such a great thing to do. And uh, yeah, and God will be faithful to help us work out the particulars. So I really appreciate y'all weighing in on this. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. For Thanks for having us. Like a broken record, same old songs of accusation play. I could you to speak the truth, just look at all your failures and mistakes. And if they really knew you, there's no way they could love you anyway. Oh, oh, oh but I will fight the lie. Well, for this week's culture segment, we get to welcome back a friend of the Boundless Show. His name is Brian Noble, and he is actually um, involved with Peacemaker Ministries. And you guys have heard, I mean, we've had Brian on the show. Um, We actually had Ken Sandy on the show in the past. We're big fans of making peace here at Boundless and being living really in reconciled relationships uh, with folks in all spheres of life. And Brian himself is a pastor. He speaks. He's an author. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking specifically about one of his more recent books that's titled Living Reconciled, Seven Ways to Bring Peace to Your Most Difficult Relationships. And uh, Brian is actually currently the executive director and CEO of Peacemaker Ministries. And uh, Brian, welcome to The Boundless Show. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Well, this is good. I was telling you a little bit before we started taping how, you know, I, I feel like 
our our audience being younger adults tends to be more readily admitting that we struggle in this area. I feel like sometimes older folks are like, oh, no, I'm really good at conflict and communication and loving other people. And then we have to take issue with that. We're like, no, you're not as good as you think you are. But um, our our group here tends to be pretty eager to grow in this area. And we certainly all need growth in this area. And so I want to jump right in because, you know, the subhead on the book talks about seven ways to bring peace to our most difficult relationships. And you actually bring in a few pretty substantive biblical principles to this. And the first one that I wanted to highlight is uh, you talk through 2 Corinthians 5 and actually describe our lives like tents and draw the parallel to really having this perspective apply to the ways we should handle conflict. Can you kind of jump off with that and give us that uh, illustration a little bit? Absolutely. But when when we think about Paul's writings and he's talking about the temporalness of this world, we think about how difficult this world can be. And I know as uh, as a young adult, when I was young, sometimes I, I had this reality in my mind like, no, things should be better than they are, and things should go perfect. And if I just do it this way, then, you know, this will be the outcome. And kind of like a formula, you know, in my mind, if I put this in, this will come out. And I've just learned as I've gotten older and and, uh, grown a little bit that, you know what, this world is temporal, and it's like a tent. It's not as uh, a a formula-driven as we might think. And so I walk through that the reality of where we are, that relationships are tough. They're not going to be simple. Um, And when we have that expectation, not not obviously trying to intentionally make them tough, but we have the expectation that that because of fallenness in this world that they are going to be tough then it takes away a lot of disappointment, and we can actually look at the trials of this life with some sort of joy and and, uh, knowing that God is with us during those trials. Yeah, well, I'm actually glad you bring up the temporal nature of this, because I think a lot of people take that, and they make it out to be, oh, okay, good. Well, this is all temporal, so the best thing for me to do is just avoid conflict altogether. And if I just get all the difficult people out of my life, (laughs) then I won't have these problems and I won't have to address (laughs) anything head on. And so we really are, I mean, I feel like culturally, especially here in the West, we're kind of a culture of conflict avoiders um, if we can can help it. And so I, I love the fact that in the book, you actually describe a situation at your own church where you had a woman who was pretty like hardcore with you even kind of threatening some legal action related to something and you kind of were trying to just sweet talk your way through that situation but what happened and what did you learn from that is the way it should be handled well i in that in that situation i didn't uh i, I don't think i paused for a moment just to ask the lord you know what would serve her best and so i would go over the top to greet her and go over the top to do all these kind of things and really, I was just simply annoying her. You know, <laughs> what, you know, I don't know if that was my motive to annoy her, but I, I didn't slow down and just really um, think about what would serve her best. And so, to back up and and look at like how can how can I serve her? How can we work together to to walk through these differences that we're facing in this world together? Because right now we are more polarized than ever. Right? I mean, we can bring up almost any topic, and it's and it's been politicized. It's been whatever. And it's like it shuts people down and drives people apart. And yet these can be our opportunities to show humility, to speak truth and love, to, you know, do these kind of things that really can bring us closer together to have deeper friendships and deeper relationships around us. And so in in that particular case, you know, it's kind of been a lifelong, um, I don't know, just one of those relationships has been difficult, but we've, we've managed to, you know, stay cordial, stay kind, stay polite. And, mm-hmm. and hopefully glorify God as we go. Well, it's almost like in saying that you're making me think of how, you know, there are certain things that we can do on the front end of a relationship or even expectations around a relationship that I think would help us approach it with almost a right mindset and a right heart. And, you know, kind of, um, well, one thing I want you to talk about is one of the seven uh, principles, kind of peaceful principles that you you bring in is, is not judging anyone according to the flesh, which is another thing straight out of scripture in that sense. Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean, though? Because we don't go around talking in that kind of language. So when there, right, when, right, when right. conflict <laughs> is, is brewing, what does it look like? How are we viewing people in a fleshly way? And how do we stop doing that? Well, when we think about the flesh, it could be like our ancestry, or it could be uh, our race, or it could be it could be like angry eyebrows. It could be you know hostility. It could be anything 
of, about our fallenness. It could be a part about who we are as a human, our family origin, our education, any just practical, tangible thing that we have in our life. And one of the things that Paul says in Second Corinthians 5 is that we don't recognize people this way. Why? They are new creations. And so they are brand new, and that stuff has been behind us. I think the easiest way is to think about that story in your family, a mistake maybe that you made decades ago that constantly kind of gets brought up as a joke or as a, a you know, as a funny. And, and maybe in your heart it's not funny anymore because it's gone on for too long. The joke has gone on too long. But you're, you, you begin to say, you know what, I'm not going to view that person through that low part of their life any longer. I'm going to begin to see them as a new individual, as a new person where they can make better choices uh, that honor and glorify God. And so that's where it's talking about. And I think that's important whether you're parenting or whether you have a friendship. If you have a laundry list of other people's mistakes and you're carrying them that around and defining them by that, the relationship will stay uh, fairly shallow and, and not really progress to a deep relationship. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting when you say that because it makes me think of how often we are so quick to put a label on a behavior of a person. So, uh, for example, you know, we'll just someone will disagree with us on something and it could be quite minor. And all of a sudden we're like saying, oh, well, they're really a toxic person. OK, that is a way overstatement of the situation yeah. of just someone who generally yeah. disagrees with you on something. And I think wouldn't it be so helpful if we all you know, we, we tend to just think that everyone is going to think the way we do. And if everyone just agreed with me, then we wouldn't have conflict. You know, hello, why don't we all just get on the same page? And that's my page. Um, mm-hmm. But but what does it look like for us to have a generous spirit towards a person to think through, like, maybe they're just thinking differently on this, or maybe there are several answers to this kind of conundrum and mine isn't the only right one. Are there ways that we can head off these difficult situations at the pass without having to get into a full-on, you know, some kind of a mediation on the back end? Yeah, so one of the things I think is important but is counterculture is that we no longer live for ourselves. You know, so when you think about how, in this in this relationship, how can I, be a person that isn't bringing my personal preferences, and that's those two words are really important, my preferences, my personal preferences, to the foreground as if they're God mandates. Um, and, and we do that. We begin to take our personal preferences and kind of put them on the same level of Scripture um, instead of stepping back and saying, yeah, this is a, a personal preference. This is not written in Scripture. It's not that strong of an item. And, and to practically tell ourselves or walk through our in, in ourselves and our self-talk to say, I'm going to step back on this and really allow either myself to grow or the other person to grow in this particular area so that, that there's grace and there's mercy. There's an old saying called charitable judgment, right? And we don't, we don't use that saying anymore or very much, but it's, I'm going to, I'm going to think of the best about someone else as I look through a lens of charity in my judgment. And so that's something that we can begin to do. And I think it's something that we need to recapture as a generation where we, we do look through that lens of, of charitable judgments and through grace and through forgiveness and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, kind of in tandem with that, I think another thing you address in the book, which is helpful, and again, the the book is titled Living Reconciled, Seven Ways to Bring Peace to Your Most Difficult Relationships, is this idea of keeping score. And we, mm. we, we say that we don't keep score, but we have very long memories when it comes to hurts done against us, I think, if we're all being honest. And so, you know, mm-hmm. we, we like to say, oh, you know, I've let that go. I've let it go. But then the minute that person repeats the offense, or maybe it's just a, a pattern for them or whatever, then it's like, oh, okay, remember July 17th of 1999? You know, all of a sudden we know the time and the date. We're all there. We're right there. You actually shared, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of humorous for us because we're we're not, uh, we weren't in the space, but you talked about how this crept into your relationship, even with your wife, when it came to time management and different expectations there. Why is scorekeeping, Mm -hmm. give give us that example and then talk about how that illustrates that scorekeeping will never win us anything. Yeah, so for a little context, my wife, uh, through her childhood, was raised in Hawaii and, you know, on the beaches, very laid-back family, and uh, just very free-flowing, I'll just say it that way. (laughs) And I was raised on the farm, very schedule-oriented, and, you know, things had to get done, and there was always more work than there was time, and, you know, so very opposite of that. And 
what was interesting is the thing that attracts me to my wife is that relaxed, right? That it brings comfort to me to, to be around her in those moments, except for when you're trying to go to the airport and get on a plane <laughs> in a timely manner, or, you know, you're trying to do something uh, that, that, that time is of the essence. And so we would get into this constant battle over these things. And what was interesting, because our different viewpoint or vantage point of how time should be used, I would somehow transition that in my mind to, she must not love me. Hmm. And it, it went from like, no, we just have a different way of using time because she doesn't love me. It's like I, I threw the whole relationship off of a cliff over uh, uh, something that we just, to this day, after 25 years of, of marriage, do not see eye to eye on. And so it, it's like when I step back and I say, why is that a condition of love? I mean, maybe she just sees it differently. You know, um, are there things that I can do to to serve her better and, you know, and vice versa? And she served me. And, and so that really helps to tear down that scoreboard, to tear down, you know, those things. And then to, to not bring those back up again, you know, not to, to use them as weapons against each other. Because quite frankly, that's what God does for us. You know, he throws our are sent into the depths of the sea, and he chooses not to dwell or think on it any longer. And I, that's the type of person, at least I, I aim to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying I'm perfect in that at all, but, um, you know, to, to make that effort to walk in that type of uh, faith um, that it can be. I, I used to tell this story all the time about a rose. I used to have this rose with circumstances with my wife, and she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. And depending on the circumstances, her reactions to them, I kind of pull a petal off the rose. And God just challenged me, put down the rose and say, she loves me. Hmm. And it really did help me to like say, I, I have to look through the filter of that she cares and loves for me, and she no longer has to prove that any longer. And then the amazing part is I had that same rose for God. You know, hmm. he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. And I said, what if I put down the rose and just say, I, when the world doesn't make sense, I don't know, but I'm going to say he loves me. Hmm. Well, that's so good. Um, Even segueing into a question I have next about, you know, again, because we want to put this in an ideal world of in an ideal world, especially among fellow Christians, we would all be honest with each other. We would be like, hey, this hurt me. The other person would be like, oh, my goodness, I never intended that. I'm so sorry. How can I do that differently? Mm -hmm. We'd all be growing and changing. And the fact is, none of us feel like that is ever happening in any consistency, Um, (laughs) even to the point where I mean, there are some people who bona fide, we probably have to establish some boundaries with because there are people that will hurt us and they act like nothing's wrong. They even when confronted, they won't admit stuff. They don't apologize. Uh, They don't admit fault. Maybe some of us feel like we've been gaslit in relationships. What mm-hmm. What is the role of appropriate boundaries? Because I think a lot of people take the word reconciled and they think, all bets are off. I just have to open up the floodgates, let this person back into my life. They're going to run over me, but that's just I have to be a Christian, so I have to just take it. What's appropriate in that context? Yeah, and I'm glad you, you're bringing that up because there are such things as abusive relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it's a real thing. I was a sheriff's chaplain for 20 years, and, and I saw I've been at domestic violence calls. I've been in those things. And I want to separate two words out reconciliation and reinstatement of relationship here on earth, right? So reconciliation is based on the work of the cross. It's based on Jesus paying the price or the bill for the break in in relationship. And sometimes this side of heaven, it's just simply not safe to reinstate the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so those are two different things. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the example from Scripture. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. And we, we quote that a lot. We don't ever read the next verse where it says, never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. And so this concept of reinstated relationship, he says, he shows us there. He says, sometimes we have to say, I'm not going to carry the bitterness, unforgiveness, and resentment around. At the same time, I'm not going to reinstate the relationship because it puts me in an unsafe space or, you know, whatever. And I'm going to leave room for God to be the final judge over this behavior, and he's going to be a much better judge than I'm ever going to be. And so um, this is this is critical, that there's a difference between allowing Christ to, to release you of your bitterness and unforgiveness and your resentment, that's reconciliation, and reinstating the relationship where you can be re-abused or re-hurt or those kind of things. Yeah. 
Well, what does that look like, Brian? Um, say, for example, because I hear a lot of this at, at Boundless or I've had experiences like this with others where they've talked this through. Like, what about when it comes down to your own family? Like, say it's not, you know, specifically an abusive situation per se, but mm-hmm. it's just it's this idea of someone tugging on the whole like blood is thicker than water line of like, you know what, you got to just take me as I am because I'm your family member and or or other family members are kind of trying to pull you back in the circle. And you're trying to do what's right. You're trying to love people, but at the same time, not get caught up in the drama. Is there like a conversation that can happen around that that can even get anywhere? Or what's what would you recommend as first steps there? So the first step I would I would say is if there's not humility on both parties, you're wasting your time with a conversation. I mean, I, I'm not trying to I, – I know that's direct. I have just done casework after casework after casework where you, you can try to put one person in who's willing to be humble and own their stuff, and then the person who's not wanting to be humble does not want to own their stuff, and the conversations typically just fall apart, right? I mean, so they – that that's the first thing. But – um, and we call that good faith negotiations, right, where both sides want to actually step forward and do something productive. So when we, in the absence of that, that's really where this book, Living Reconciled, was written for. It's like, what do I do if the other person doesn't want to reconcile? Mm-hmm. Well, then we take on the attitude of Christ, and we have to have our relationship with God to be restored. And then we're directed by God through his word, through his spirit, of how to represent the gospel to that other person. And I remind people you know, that Jesus both was in the temple teaching, sometimes overturning tables, those kind of things. He was also on the mountaintop getting refilled, getting, you know, I have to be careful when you say that because (laughs) he was God or is God, you know, but you know what I'm saying. He Mm -hmm. he had his time with the Father. And so we see that as an example for us. And so there is nothing, I'm cautious of the word boundaries because I think people have used boundaries to say, I can hold on to bitterness. You know, um, I, I, I'm careful with that word, but there's nothing wrong with defining the relationship in a way that will help maintain glorifying God through the relationship. And that may be at times an absence. I mean, Paul, I was just reading right before you got on. He says um, in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Among these are Hymenus and Alexander, who have turned over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blasphemy. That's a powerful statement. He names names, and he says, I'm backing off of these people. Hmm. Um, and not, and I'm not engaging with these people because they need to learn something uh, from God. Now, it's really easy if that's someone in your church, or, you know, something like that. But when it's your uncle or your brother or sister, it becomes incredibly difficult. And so, backing off and saying, "God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to interact?" and then following His instruction, I think, is very, very key in those situations. Yeah. And that's so true. I mean, I think that's where people get caught up in this vortex of crazy because it's like maybe the person will say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I am I want to come at this. I want to work this out. Let's do it. But then they don't really. But then they're like, well, let's just act like nothing happened and you just treat me the same. And you're like, no. I mean, that's where that's where it's like you just have to say, um, you know, I would jokingly say this like, OK, anyway, I would, except you're not coming to this humbly. So, you know, maybe we don't need to come out with guns blazing and just tell people whether or not they're humble. But I think that's wise to say, like, yeah, you got to read the read the situation and who are you dealing with? And are they you know, is this something that's worth going? going after based on on what you're seeing. So that's that's helpful. Absolutely right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, there are so many um, y'all. You know, like I said, we've been talking through the the book that Brian has written. Uh, actually, outlines seven ways really to bring peace into these relationships. And uh, he's really written. I mean, and what he does with peacemakers is so huge. Um, in fact, last time Brian was here, we talked about the book "The Path of a Peacemaker," which also is a great mm-hmm. wealth of wisdom as well. Um, Living reconciled, we want to make a available to y'all for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So this is something where you go to boundless.org and uh, you will see, basically, you can search for 747. That's this week's episode. You'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. Um, It'll take you to a page to give a gift of any amount to Boundless, whatever you can afford to kind of continue, help support the ministry that goes on here. And we want to send you a copy of Living Reconciled as our thank you to you. So you can go ahead and do that. 
do that today. Again, a gift of any amount. And uh, Brian, I just want to thank you so much for being part of this conversation today, even getting the conversation started. There's so much more in the book, but I think this is something that, especially in a day and age where we're becoming increasingly disconnected, um, it's such an important conversation to have. Well, thank you for having me on and uh, giving me the time to discuss this with you. We buried dreams, laid them deep into the earth behind us our goodbyes at the grave, but everything reminds us. God knows we ache when he asks us to go on. How do we go on? We will sing to our souls. We won't Folks, as we finish out the show, we open up our inbox as we do every week, and we have some kind of expert answer one of your questions. And you, our listeners, provide such a great uh, source of questions for us on a number of different topics. And today we have one of our counselors, Joni, down here. Hey, Joni, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's always fantastic when we have a member of our counseling team. And, you know, sometimes it could be a pastor or theologian or someone, you know, in in that realm that answers it. Um, Sometimes I answer questions, but a lot of times we use our counselors and we're so privileged to have them here. All right. This is a multifaceted one, Joni, you and I were talking about it. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and read it and let you uh, weigh in with some great encouragement and advice for this listener. Okay. Uh, She says, I became friends with this guy from church and later developed a crush on him. I graduate college soon and just applied to graduate school to earn my master's. My plans to wait until I finish my master's and get a job before settling down. While Boundless doesn't recommend waiting too long to settle down, I have cerebral palsy and that impacts my daily life and chances at marriage. My disability causes me many great difficulties. I have two questions in light of these circumstances. One, is my disability a sign that God is calling me to lifetime singleness? I don't think I'd make a good wife. And two, what should I do about my crush on this guy? My mentor from church counseled me not to share my feelings with him so I don't ruin the friendship. Hmm. Well, Lisa, I felt sort of sad when I read this question because I want this young woman to know that there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that God would use a disability to keep someone from getting married. This is also not aligned with the loving, merciful, and compassionate character of God. And really, if this idea was true, disabled people wouldn't be married. And we know that many people with a variety of disabilities are married and actually living fulfilling professional and personal lives with their spouses and children. So one really great example is a member of our Physicians Resource Council, Dr. Tyler Sexton, who is an accomplished pediatrician, among other things, and he's married and has a daughter. Now, this listener might be interested to know that he has CP, and Tyler admits to the limitations that come from having CP, but that hasn't stopped him from succeeding in many areas in his life and having developed some very interesting areas of expertise inside and outside of the medical field. This listener might feel really encouraged if she were to go to Tyler's website, which is www.tylersexton.com. And then I wonder what she means when she says that she doesn't think that she would make a good wife. If she believes that her disability would keep her from being able to be a good wife, I would disagree with that. So while a wife with CP might have some limitations that keep her from living the same kind of life as a wife without CP, 
basically the quality of her married life could be just as good as or even better than the marriage of a wife without CP, just really different in some ways. But if there are specific reasons that she thinks she would not make a good wife, for example, maybe she wants to focus solely on her career and thinks that being married would stifle her success, then I would encourage her talking to a counselor about that. That counselor could help her really work through those concerns. So it would also be important for her to recognize that if she decides that she would rather stay single than be married, she can still have a very rich and fulfilling life that honors God. And then in regard to her second question, ah, the crush, I think it's best to keep her crush private at this point. So if she sees signs that her friend wants to consider moving toward a closer relationship, for example, if he indicates that he wants to take her out on a formal date or something like that, then she could begin to talk more about how she feels about him. And if he doesn't, then she'll still have the opportunity to talk to a really good friend. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, good thoughts there. And it is tricky because, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things to figure out in the meantime. And clearly, you know, taking on finishing up school, starting graduate school, there's just a lot going on. And especially, yeah, I mean, no need to, you know, I'm often a big fan of, of putting cards on the table and being honest. But if if she's not even certain yet that she wants to move into a relationship, I would just say, just chill, you know, right. put it, put it on the back burner. Let God, you know, chill see what God does word. in it. Chill. Just <laughs> and, chill. Uh, I agree. And there are other great things to focus on, yep. but thanks for the encouragement in yep. that Joni so much. You're welcome. Um, I do want to let folks know too, that this is a great example of where um, we have a team of counselors here at Focus on the Family, all licensed professional Christian counselors who can do an initial consult with you if you have one of these life issues. I mean, certainly uh, this one brought in several different variations of that, and you just need a little guidance on where to go from here. Uh, you can go to focusonthefamily.com slash get help, and that will direct you to resources, to some advice there. You can also do an initial consultation with a counselor, and they can even refer you to someone in your area if you need some continued care on whatever issue you are struggling with. And so certainly avail yourself of that. You can also call at 1-800-THE-LETTER-A-AND-THE-WORD-FAMILY, and they can direct you uh, to uh, to get that help as well. So Joni, thanks so much for weighing in. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, that's it uh, for this week's show. As always, we love to hear from you. Do write to us, editor at boundless.org, with your questions, your concerns, your comments. And we will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org. Focus on the family.